Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, we can't play these songs all the way through because then that's all we would do today. And that would be a fine thing to do. Uh, as pretty much everybody knows by now, I think, Stephen Sondheim died Friday at the age of 91 at his home in Roxbury, Connecticut. And so there are sort of three types of relationships that people have with Sondheim. There are the first kind of the people who kind of know it all and know a couple of songs from Saturday Night, which was his mostly unproduced musical, which he wrote something like 70 years ago, maybe 65 years ago. Uh, and you know a couple of songs from Evening Prim- Primrose, and then you know pretty much the scores of everything. Uh, and then there are people who, they, they kind of know some Sondheim musicals, and you know, they, they know Company or something. And, and then there are people who only know Send in the Clowns. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only song they know. Um, so most of our guests on the show today, probably all of our guests on the show today, are in that first category, people who have been so bewitched and entranced by Sondheim for all these many years that um, it's just impossible to imagine a world without him. Uh, so to help me along, help me through this process today, actually, before I introduce him, let me just tell you who else is coming. Coming along as we go, uh, Florence Lacey. Uh, she is an actress and vocalist who has appeared on Broadway many times, including in the most recent Broadway production of Sondheim's Follies. Uh, Alexandra Petri, been with us many times before, columnist for The Washington Post, uh, wrote a, a, an appreciation there uh, for Sondheim. Gene Seymour, writer, professional spectator, he says, Pop culture maven is always on our jazz show. He wrote an appreciation of Sondheim for CNN. And Howard Sherman, who is basically, I believe, the mayor of Broadway. I guess he's the deputy mayor of Broadway, and uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is the mayor. I don't know. We'll straighten all that out when we get to him. But joining us now, as we would have to have this be the case, uh, is the man who is our guru about most things musical, uh, Steve Metcalf, uh, composer, uh, musician, a writer about music, teacher, thinker, I don't know. I, there's, we'd be all here all day trying to figure out who exactly Steve Metcalf is, but uh, he's certainly here right now. Uh, and welcome. We should probably say, Steve, that you and I have been having conversations about Stephen Sondheim for minimum 35 years, right? Minimum. <laughs> you left out Bon Vivant. Bon there, Vivant, but- yes. Um, and so, you know, just maybe before we get in, what we're going to do is everybody's going to talk about one song. And Steve is going to stay here for the whole show, but he's going to do his one song coming up. But, you know, I don't know. One thing I was trying to think about today is there's a sense that when you first start really taking Sondheim's music in, even if you're pretty well steeped in the tradition tradition of the Broadway musical, you feel like you're hearing something different, something that just isn't a logical next step from Cole Porter and Rodgers and Hammerstein and all that stuff, that, that it's it's something different or beyond that? I don't know. Is there a, is, Are there some words you, you can put to that feeling? 
Um, well, I, I think what you say is true with the possible exception of follies, which I think we should talk about in its own little subcategory. But, but I think, you know, the more that Sondheim revealed himself personally later in life in interviews, and I don't think he ever particularly intended to, but I think he, he became a little more, you know, sort of inadvertently revealing than, than perhaps he even meant to. It was pretty clear that he always intended to push those boundaries. He always intended to sort of go someplace with the next show that the previous show wouldn't have even remotely hinted at. And, and in the process, of course, ended up creating whatever it is, 12 or 15 shows that, that really in many ways are so different from each other that even though there's a kind of recognizable thumbprint, I think, DNA to all of them, that they really are just astoundingly uh, unlike one another, you know, and I, and I don't think you can say that about anybody else in the history of American theater. So the most horrible thing you can do to a Sondheim fan is ask them to pick one song, but that's what I did to all five of you today, and I think we should get to yours because it's fun to play these songs here. Uh, so we're going to hear uh, now Finishing the Hat from Sunday in the Park with George. We'll play, you know, a chunk of it, and then we'll come back and Steve will talk a little bit about it. So take it away, Cat. Mademoiselles, you and me, pal. Second bottle, ah, she looks for me. Bonnet flapping, yapping, rough, chicken, pastry. Yes, she looks for me. Good. Let her look for me to tell me why she left me, as I always knew she would. I had thought she understood. They have never understood, and no reason that they should. But if anybody could. Finishing the hat How you have to finish the hat How you watch the rest of the world from a window While you finish the hat Mapping out a sky What you feel like planning a sky What you feel when voices that come through the window Go until they distance and die Until there's nothing but sky and how you're always turning back too late From the grass or the stick or the dog or the light How the kind of woman willing to wait Not the kind that you want to find waiting To return you to the night Dizzy from the height Coming from the hat Studying the hat so we're going to fade that down a little bit. That's obviously Mandy Patinkin. I hope I don't have to tell people that. Mandy Patinkin singing in the 1984 Broadway production of A Sunday in the Park with George. He's playing the painter George Surratt. Um, so, yeah, well, first of all, why'd you pick this one? Uh, there's, you know, there's so many things to choose from. Well, I just thought, you know, I, I mean, I don't intend to claim that this is uh, the best Sondheim song. I don't think there is such a thing, and that's a, a pointless errand anyway. 
But I, I guess I felt like if if somebody said, what what is this Sondheim phenomenon all about? Why are people, you know, if you wanted a, a window to borrow an image from the song into what Sondheim is all about and what his work is all about, I, I think this is probably as good a song to choose as any. And by the way, you know, it's only like a, I don't know what, three minute and 20 second song and, and the first 30 or 40 seconds, as we just heard, are, are kind of the introductory verse. I mean, it slides into the, if we can even use the word chorus for a tune like this, you know, it slides into it very imperceptibly uh, uh, about a, I don't know what, a quarter of the way into the thing. So it's really only about two minutes and something of music. And yet I think it can be said that, that this really does represent the essence of what uh, Sondheim's genius is all about. You know, one thing that it doesn't have so much of is, I mean, there's so many things that Sondheim is known for. What it doesn't have are, are those very, very tricky rhyme schemes, you know, interior rhymes or uh, moments where, you know, a word is used twice in different ways. There, there's less of that, and it really is almost uh, a, a very earnest description by, by the character of what it's like to try to be creative. Well, that's that's right. Although it's not quite true, I, I would say that it doesn't have the one, let's call it wordplay that mm -hmm. he was that he was famous for. Um, I mean, I mean, there is a there is a kind of obsessiveness about about this tune that I love. You you <laughs> you actually um, uh, brought the volume down just at the moment where he's saying, uh, "Coming from the hat, studying the hat." entering the world of the hat, reaching through the world of the hat, like a window back to this one from that. I mean, you know, first of all, this, like so many Sondheim tunes, this doesn't sound like what we think of as a show tune. I mean, this sounds like uh, an art song, not to, not to sound pretentious here, but, you know, it, it sounds like uh, a, a statement of, you know, kind of artistic purpose that is, it is nothing like what I think most people mean when they say show tune. Right. And there is a way in which I think anybody who's ever been involved, well, in not just creative tasks, but all kinds of, of things that you pour your passion into, it really does sort of catch, capture a little bit of the idea of the sunny day where other people are out doing other stuff, you know, <laughs> and, and you can't go there because you've got to do this. You, you've, you know, you've got to stay uh, at the keyboard, uh, at the typewriter, uh, at the canvas, whatever it is. You've got to stay there and do that. Uh, and I think anybody who's ever worked on anything like that can sort of identify with right. what, what and, he's and I think I think over the years a lot of people have kind of glibly said, well, you know, not only this song, but that whole show is kind of Sondheim's personal statement about what it means and what it feels like to be an artist and the and the struggle and the sacrifice uh, that come with it. Um, except I I think as glib as it may be, I think there's actually a lot of truth to it, as evidenced by the fact that, as you know, the the two kind of more or less autobiographical books that he brought out late in his life were called, respectively, Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat, which is another line from the tune. Um, you know, to to summarize, in a way, what his life, he felt, was all about. So I think the idea that Sondheim saw 
something of his own struggle in the story of George Surratt is is you know hard to argue with. All right, we're gonna we'll have uh, Steve Metcalf here for the entire show. He's gonna be talking with our other guests uh, and offering observations here and there. But I want to bring in one of our other guests, uh, Florence Lacey, Flo Flo, Flo Lacey to us, uh, an actress and vocalist who has appeared on Broadway many times, including in the most recent Broadway production of Sondheim's Follies and and elsewhere in theater. She's done uh, other Sondheim shows. I believe she's been Desiree in A Little Night Music twice. Um, so, I mean, I couldn't resist uh, having her on. First of all, Flo, welcome back to our show. I think you've been on once before, right? And we might not, we might not quite have her yet. Um, I'll tell you what we'll do while we figure out where where Flo is and and how to get her volume up. Uh, let's play the song that she picked out. So the song that she picked out is in fact a song that she sang on Broadway. She went into the production of Follies, uh, replacing Elaine Page, who you're going to hear sing this song. Song is I'm Still Here. Good times, fun times, I've seen them all, my dear. I'm still here. Plush velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I've stuffed the dailies in my shoes, strummed ukuleles, sung the blues, seen all my dreams disappear, but I'm here. I've slept in shanties, guest of the WPA, but I'm here. Danced in my scanty three bucks a night was the pay, but I'm here. I've stood on bread lines with the best, watched while the headlines did the rest. In the depression was I depressed, nowhere near. I and I'm here I've been through Gandhi, Windsor and Wally's affair And I'm here Amos and Andy, Marjong and Platinum Hair And I'm here I got through Amy's Irish Rose I live through Shirley Temple and I'm here. I've gone through her and getting a home. That was four and a half. And you've been through her and getting a home. Anything else is a laugh. I've been through Reno, I've been through Beverly Hills, and I'm here. Reefers, Reno, rescues religion and 
pills, but I'm here. Been called a pinko, commit. All right, so we're having a little problem with Flo Lacey's phone connection, which may mean uh, that uh, Metcalf and I will be discussing this one as well. Uh, Steve, one thing that I'm noticing here is that one thing that Sondheim did a few times, maybe a lot of times, as shows were revived and restaged, was redo them a little bit. I mean, if you know the lyrics from maybe the original uh, production of Follies, these are different, right? Oh, yeah, and that's not only true of Follies, of course, but... Um but I do, as I was listening to that tune, I, I thought of a thing that I think you and I have talked about, and, and that is, um, you know, Follies is really an interesting show in a lot of ways. And I, I think, for me, I've always kind of felt in some way that Follies, to some extent, was Sondheim's way of saying, hey, you don't think I can write hummable tunes? You don't, you don't think I can... Right, a toe tapper, you know, in the in the old style. Here's a show virtually full of them, and and of course some of them have become great standards and and beloved uh, tunes uh, in their own right. But I mean, I I think there's a sense in which Sondheim was trying to kind of work something out. He he didn't do it ever again. But but even although that was a relatively early show in his career, and I think was the one that came right after Company. You know, he, he was already suffering this charge from critics and audiences that, that it just wasn't like, well, these aren't these aren't the kind of tunes that we expect to find in a Broadway show. And this was, to some extent, his reply was, I can do that. Just uh, that's not where my uh, muse is taking me. But let me just at least demonstrate to get this out of the way that I can do that. And so, you know, beautiful girls um and and you know um maybe even lo- losing my mind this losing my mind bro- broadway, broadway baby you know, stuff. The, i can write show tunes with the best of them which he obviously could and i and i feel like there was some element there that he was trying to work that out and demonstrate that to people right it, it's sort of this is a sort of interesting song too because i mean it works within the context of the show it's one of the handful of Sondheim show songs that have kind of crossed over out of their musicals. And now, I mean, I always love it when like some 37 year old singer gets up in a cabaret setting or something and sings this song, like she's really been through the mill or something. But you know, I mean, Carol Burnett or somebody like that, not that Carol Burnett has really had a lot of bum times, but you know, somebody like that can do it in a concert setting. Uh, and, and, and it works in its own way because she did a great version of it in that, in that, uh, concert version. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think the, the, what you're saying is true in two different ways. It's Sondheim saying to the world, yeah, of course I could write that kind of song. It just has to make sense, you know, for me to write that kind of song. And, and this, But when you write that kind of song, you suddenly got a song that maybe people can do, you know, people can do outside the, the setting of the show you wrote it for. It has a little bit more transferability. But I would agree. I mean, you and I were talking about this yesterday. You know, I, I don't think he would have written Broadway Baby under any other circumstances. I mean, not that it's not a good song. It's just like it's just not something he would necessarily turn his talents to. Right. Nor do I think he would ever overtly say, hey, I was just bugged because people were accusing me of not being able to do this. And so I just wanted to sort of put it out there that I have those chops just in case anybody's wondering. 
So um, I think what we're going to do now is take a break. We have not been able to solve the problem of Flo Lacey's uh, phone connection because we, we barely know how phones work anymore. We've been doing Zoom for so long uh, on, during the pandemic. But um, when we come back, we're going to talk more with Steve Metcalf, Alexandra Petri, Gene Seymour, Howard Sherman. They'll all be joining us. First a witch, then a child, then a prince, then a moment who can live in the woods. And to get what you wish only just for a moment, these are dangerous woods. Let the moment go. Don't forget it for a moment, though. Just remembering you've had an ad when you're back to Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When I was 19, I read the lyrics of putting it together to my mother to say that this is what I wanted to do with my life even though I had no idea of what this might be. Mm. I couldn't sing like Mandy Patinkin, I couldn't compose like Sondheim, I couldn't write or direct like James Lapine, but like Seurat's hat, that play was a window from this world to that. And I will always be grateful to you for laying out the, the desire and the beauty of the act of creation itself, regardless of where that may take you. When I read that, I was touched, and I'm touched again. Thank you. For the rest of my life. Thank you. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution. Every little detail plays a part. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. The board of the foundation is meeting next week. That, of course, well, first of all, you heard uh, Stephen Colbert and Stephen Sondheim uh, at the beginning there, and that's the song that both they uh, and Steve Metcalf were talking about before. Putting it together is, you know, often really sort of singled out from Sunday in the Park with George uh, as really a description of what it's like to try to get something what makes something work, you know, whether it's <laughs> whether it's a public radio show or a Broadway musical or a piece of art. Uh, so uh, joining us now is Alexandra Petri, a columnist for The Washington Post, very, very f- funny writer who's been with us many times before, usually to talk about vexillology or something like that. Uh, she's also the author of Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why, or to talk about puns, which are, probably will be a little bit more relevant um, uh, as we go along here. But, you know, I have to say, I mean, I don't know you well. I know you by reading your work and having you on the show, I, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that you were such a, a Sondheimophile uh, until I, I read the piece that you wrote. Maybe just sort of tell us, like, you know, what's your relationship with all this stuff? Well, I feel like 
I'm a, a big theater geek, which is something that I feel like anyone who lives with me knows because of I'm constantly hijacking the musical selections and, you know, singing along with Assassins in the Shower and that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> we, should say as, we should say Assassins is a play. That's not something that uh, Alexander is doing in the shower with actual Assassins. Anyway, continue. No, exactly. I'm not just doing, I'm going to the Lordy, the original uh, unset version. I'm doing the version that Sondheim has thoughtfully set to music. Um, and uh, no, I'm a huge musical theater nut. And actually, like I've been slowly working on writing a musical for years. So I uh, am a big appreciator of it. And I feel like there's this thing Virginia Woolf said about Proust, where she's like, when you read him, you're sort of depressed because you're like, well, I can never write anything like that. And that's sort of how Sondheim is because everything he does is so great and so perfect. And so like, I almost am more into junkier musicals usually because I'm like, well, oh, like, you know, no offense to everyone who created Jekyll and Hyde, but like, I could do that. I could probably write a musical <laughs> like that. <laughs> but sometimes you're just like, oh, this is like so deep and it's so funny. And like, he can really do everything with words. So it's both like a, it, I feel like I had to start of start on him like a little bit later in life. Other than, although West Side Story was the first musical I ever loved. Now that I'm thinking back on it, here's just a sort of, I'm going to, uh, divigate wildly and tell you all of my thoughts about musical theater. Like the first musical I ever loved was cats, <laughs> which, you know, is on brand. I loved cats as a human being and like really was into felines as a concept. I was like a little kid and like Gus, the theater cat, like threw a flower at into the audience and I caught it. And I'm like, this is great. Musical theater is the way. And then the next one was West Side Story, which is like actually a good musical in a way that cats is definitely not. And I'm glad you understand that now. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I I feel like there's sort of this interesting porousness between like good and bad and beloved. And the neat thing about so many Sondheim musicals is they like you you hear the concept and you're like, well, this couldn't possibly be a good musical. And it's like, no, this is a great musical, actually. Right. Well, um, I, the, actually, the song that we're going to play for you that you want to talk about is the ultimate example of this can't possibly be a good musical. And then it's a great musical. I do want to say also, apropos of you singing Assassins uh, in the Shower, that, that for the last couple of hours before I came into the studio today, I kept turning to my dog, Declan, and say, singing, you are probably the worst dog in Hartford. Uh, you, can, <laughs> you can sort of plug these things into, you know, all kinds of situations. All right. So Alexandra, although she really, really, really was toying with the idea of one of the songs from Assassins, decided uh, that she wanted uh, to go for the uh, for for reasons that she'll explain after we play it uh, with the song A Little Priest. I should say for people not familiar with with Sweeney Todd, uh, what's happening here is that that Mrs. Lovett, who is running a very unsuccessful pie shop, uh, uh, has paired up with uh, with Sweeney Todd, uh, who is a barber hellbent on revenge. Uh, and she's suggesting to him now how they might combine their talents uh, so uh, so that, you know, he's going to produce a lot of dead bodies. She needs to produce a lot of meat pies. You can connect the dots. So here's the song, A Little Priest. Seems a downright shame. Shame? Seems an awful waste. Such a nice plump frame. What's his name as? Ad has. Nor it can't be traced. Business needs are lift. Debts to be erased. Think of it as thrift, as a gift. 
if you get my drift. Now? Seems an awful waste. I mean, with the price of meat, what it is, when you get it, if you get it. Huh. Good you got it. Take, for instance, Mrs. Mooney and a pie shop. Business never better using only pussycats and toast. And a pussy's good for maybe six or seven at the most. And I'm sure they can't compare as far as taste. Mrs. Lovett, what a charming notion. Well, and I'm practical and not appropriate waste. as always. Mrs. Lovett, how I've lived without you all these years, I never know. Think I'll about be it. Lots of other gentlemen will soon be coming for a shame. Won't they? The sound of the world out there. What, Mr. Tom? What, Mr. Tom? What is that sound? Those crunching noises pervading the air. Yes, Mr. Toddy, yes, Mr. Toddy, yes, all around. It's man devouring man, my dear. And who are we to gain a hidden here? Ah, these are desperate times, Mrs. Lovett. And desperate measures must be taken. Here we are now, hot out of the oven. What is that? It's priest. Have a little priest. Is it really good? Sir, it's too good, at least. Then again, they don't commit sins of the flesh. So it's pretty fresh. Awful lot of fat. Only where it's at. Haven't you got poet or something like that? Now you see the trouble with poet is how do you know it's deceased? Try the priest. Mmm, heavenly. Not as hearty as bishop, perhaps, but then not as bland as curate either. Good for business, too. Always leaves you wanting more. Trouble is, we only get it on Sundays. Lawyer's rather nice. If it's for a price... It pains me to fade this before we get to the shepherd's pie peppered with actual shepherd, but um, but we don't, but time is pressing. You know, Steve. Before we throw it back to Alexandra, you know, there's so many things in this song that are the things that we talk about when we talk about Sondheim. And I'm so glad we played the kind of lead in to the most more familiar melody because there's all this very melodic stuff going on and this really, you know, ferocious counterpoint going back and forth between the two singers. I mean, before you even get to the heart of the song, he's musically done a whole bunch of other things to you. Yeah, well, of course, as has been pointed out many times, Sweeney is by far his most as it were, operatic piece, and 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 that's part and parcel of what you're just talking about. I mean, it, there's almost not any real distinction between the verse and the chorus, or the intro and the head of the song. You know, because it's all it's all continuous, and and uh, that has led many of us over the years to wish he had uh, sort of gone down that path a few more times in his career, but but he didn't, and and he has often said that he wasn't interested in opera per se, and to the extent that Sweeney seemed to resemble one, and, it, and of course nowadays is produced as often in opera houses as it is in music theater uh, places, um, has taken its place in, in the repertoire as a, you know, as a modern opera. So Alexandra, you are, among other things, a, uh, some kind of pun 
you're also a cannibal. We should say that first. But you're, uh, <laughs> yeah. but you're also you've won these punning competitions, and I assume that's one of the th- reasons you're drawn to this. I mean, he doesn't exactly do puns, but there's, as Steve said, a tremendous amount of wordplay in this song. No, exactly. I feel like I found it after selecting this as my favorite. There's this great McSweeney's piece. Uh, by Orly Matlow that sort of sorts you according to your favorite Sondheim song. And it says, if a little priest is your favorite, you were on your college improv team, you own multiple t-shirts with puns on them, and you're not afraid to repeat a joke louder if nobody laughed the first time, (laughs) which is a devastating and accurate read, except that I was not even on the college improv team. I was like in the audience shouting at it. So um, I have a, a boundless appreciation for puns. And I think the funny thing about this is, it's a really hard thing to pull off this song because it's not just people who like, it's not a song that's sort of unaware of its own wit. It's two people who are in the context of it deliberately sort of cracking each other up with more and more <laughs> egregious plays on words on about, you know, devouring human flesh, the ultimate treat. Um, and <laughs> so it's, it's a weird alchemy to pull off where like the audience is laughing at people who know they're being funny which is really difficult uh so they're like laughing to themselves but you're also like by the time you get to the politician you're laughing even if you don't want to be at least that's my experience with it uh but i agree like the lead-in musically because you know sweeney todd's all over the place with the sort of the tone where it's just it's so heightened and it's so dramatic and it's like you couldn't view it as a tragedy but it's so big that it's almost like a horror spectacle where like how real are any of the feelings like how chaotic is it and that's a choice every production sort of makes differently um and so just leading into it it's the two of them like the realization i think is almost the funniest part like oh that's what this song is going to be about it's going to be we're we're doing it like the wonderful practicality that mrs lovett has uh, starting with her first song, Worst Pies in London, where she's sitting there saying, well, you know, pussycats are di- very difficult to catch, gotcha. which is the reason I don't serve them here. Not like I have a moral objection to serving cats. It's just... I have, I'm a woman alone with, with limited, limited wind. wind. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, we should say another thing about this, Steve, which is there's a lot of people who can't get past the premise of the musical. I mean, they just can't do it, even if they sit down and try to watch it. There's another group of people who I think, as Alexandra is suggesting, maybe feel that way going in and then they're just swept up, you know, in, in the humor of this song or, or the, the pathos and beauty of some of the other songs. But I mean... One thing that I'm always struck by is how many really gorgeous songs there are in this incredibly grim, <laughs> horrifying <Yeah. laughs> musical. And and Steve, I know that, you know we were talking yesterday about how Joanna, which is one of the really nice ballads from there, that's another song that kind of survives a little bit outside the musical. Although I don't know if it makes full sense outside the musical. Oh, I think it definitely is surviving now. And I think, uh, it, you know, it makes whatever sense you want it to make. It certainly doesn't have to refer back to the story any more than Pretty Women does. Um, you know, and you can, I mean, that's why I think it's it's become a pretty, you know, well-done, well-traveled piece outside the show. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I think that's testimony to the, I don't know what the universality or something of the of the tunes that they they don't have to have the show to 
to, to have a meaning, even if the meaning isn't precisely what the, what the show assigns to them, you know? Yeah. In fact, Alexandra, I don't know if you've been watching the series The Morning Show, but there's a scene where there's a charity benefit and, and Billy Crudup, who plays a network executive, sings uh, Not While I'm Around and beckons Jennifer Aniston over. Jennifer Aniston, it turns <laughs> out, can kind of get through a song, too. And they sing it as a duet, but it's really about, you know, it's, it's about what it's about in that particular context. So these things, I guess they kind of are transferable. Um, uh, that's true. I mean, it's like I'm unworthy of your love. <laughs> Speaking of things that out out of context are just this is just a nice ballad and totally not about assassinating anyone at all. I think Sweeney also you with not while I'm around or even these are my friends. I mean, you could just sing it about your friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have to take a moment to digest that particular idea. But um, as it were, as it were. Hope yes. it, yeah, I hope you digest it well. Uh, yes. Uh, Alexandra Petri, as usual, uh, a joy to have you with us. Uh, she's, of course, a columnist for The Washington Post, the author of Nothing is Wrong and Here is Why. She's going to work on a musical. Steve Metcalf and I and a third collaborator, Larry Bloom, did write and stage a musical. We can tell you, Alexandra, exactly how many years that will take off your life if you really go through with it. Uh, <laughs> Worth it, though, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a jump ball, actually, whether it's worth it or not. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think what we'll do is we'll take a break right now. We're going to come back with our final two guests here. Uh, and we'll be back with, uh, with first Gene Seymour and Howard Sherman after this break. I was younger then. I saw everything. I was hidden all the time. It was easier to climb. I was younger then, I saw everything, where they came and where they went, I was part of the event, I was someone in the dream, I was younger then. All right. Very quickly, I want to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer, uh, making it all happen, uh, struggling with problems not of her invention today. Uh, and also uh, Jonathan McPants, who helped uh, me produce this show. I was uh, Yesterday, I fell in love with this idea, and I started bugging everybody uh, about coming on. So uh, we have to go swiftly now. We've got two guests in this segment, and I want to get to both of them uh, and have no Matt Damon situations here. So Gene Seymour, first of all, Steve Metcalf still with us. Gene Seymour is a writer, professional spectator, pop culture. Culture Maven, jazz geek. He's on our show every year for the Jazz Roundup and also with us for other reasons. He just wrote about Sondheim for CNN.com. Gene, welcome back to our airwaves. Great to be back, Colin. Thank you. Uh, and uh, actually, without, I think without further ado, I'm just going to send us right into the song uh, that, that you picked out uh, to do for us to do or to talk about, and, and that is Being Alive from Company. Uh, I believe we're going to hear the Dean Jones uh, version from the original cast album, so to speak. And so here it goes. Someone to hold you too close. Someone to hurt you too deep. Someone to sit in your chair To ruin your sleep That's true, but there's more than that Is that all you think there is to it? You've got so many reasons for not being with someone But Robert, you haven't one good reason for being alone Come on, you're onto something, Bobby You're onto something Someone to need you too much Someone to know you too well 
someone to pull you up short, to put you through hell. You see what you look for, you know. You're not a kid anymore, Robbie. I don't think you'll ever be a kid. Okay, I'm fading it in the interest, interest of time, although there's like big upper octave payoffs that are coming. Um, and it's probably worth, I should say, first of all, that when I got the news that Sondheim had died, I rewatched Six by Sondheim on HBO Max. And when the footage of Dean Jones singing this song in the cast album recording session came up, I just started weeping uncontrollably. Uh, and we should also mention that this is actually the third song written to end company. Hal Prince made uh, Sondheim throw out two songs before that. One of them was Marry Me a Little, which has become a major Sondheim staple in the canon. But so, Gene, um, you know, we want everybody to write, read your terrific piece in, in C- on CNN.com. But tell us why you picked this particular song for this particular conversation with me and Steve. Well, one of the things I said in my uh, piece is, uh, is that um, uh, it's becoming clear, it, it became clear even be- before he died that Sondheim was very much working not just as in, in the tradition of great lyricists like Hart, Hammerstein, whatever, but also in the tradition of Shakespeare, a very humanistic tradition. And I've always thought that if there was any song of Sondheim's that was um, most like the to be or not to be monologue from Hamlet, it was this one. Because much in the same way as that soliloquy, um, this song really goes through an emotional ringer and, and, it, and it makes an active connection between being together and as the title says, being alive. And, um, and, and the reason why I'm glad you picked the, G- the Dean Jones performances, I don't need to tell you, is that that may be one of the very few, if not the only example of a show-stopping performance, Dean Jones's performance of this song, in which the show-stopping moment came not on stage and, and, in, and in a recording studio because um, Jones had dropped out of the production before it actually premiered, I think, was because of uh, he was going through serious marital difficulties, which uh, I guess the, the song really kind of n- nailed him to the wall emotionally on this, and he, and he left. But they, but they insisted that he record this song, this particular song, uh, with with the cast album. And um, you know, you're you're not the only. You said you you uh, broke into tears upon watching that again. Imagine how he felt doing it, and you can see it on the screen. I mean, I, I oh yeah, he's 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 yeah, and and Steve, I I'm sure you know that Sondheim said that Jones never sang the song that well, not even close. That somehow or other he understood. Uh, the moment he was in there in the recording studio and just like yeah. turned it all loose. And Steve, Steve Metcalf, I think you can, you can sort of, as Gene is saying, you can kind of see it on his face. And I think Sondheim said, you can see him sweating this thing out as he sings it. Well, of course, that documentary has become famous in its own right. And it's, it's almost like a little uh, adjunct to the show. I mean, it's got so many moments. Um, but uh, First of all, Gene, how you doing? I, uh, oh, Steve. I, I I thought your uh, CNN thing likewise was brilliant, and Thank you. I congratulate you. I, Thank you. If you don't mind, can I pivot just for one second here while we have Gene because yeah. he knows everything about everything? Sure. I, I I have often felt, or I've long felt, that for some reason jazz players tend not to tackle Sondheim tunes 
as often as they would, I don't know, a Rogers and Hart tune or even a Beatles yep. tune. Yes. And and because I just don't know that world very well, I'm I'm I guess I don't necessarily understand why that's the case. Do you that's an excellent point. And I and I I wondered that myself because back in 2000, as part of the JVC Jazz Festival in New York, there was a tribute to Sondheim, a jazz tribute to Sondheim. And um there, and nobody there, showed there, up. Well, yeah, well, a lot of people showed up, but uh, Jackie and Roy, people like that, I, I, I try to remember all, all the cast, everybody who was involved, but it was a range of singers, and a lot of these singers are just in awe of Sondheim to the point where they, they didn't feel that they wanted to break the structure or the motifs of the songs themselves. In other words, they, they just thought that trying to make them or trying to impose swing upon what they saw as delicate, as a, a kind of very delicate machinery would throw the whole thing off. And so they were kind of at a remove from it. The only one who I think knocked it out of the park is this singer named Leah Deloria, Delaria, who you may well, you may know better from Orange is the New Black. Hmm. Uh, she played one of the inmates there. And she had done, you know, jazz versions of show tunes uh, beforehand. But she did the, the, you know, the, the uh, main song from Sweeney Todd, hmm. Demon Barber. Oh, yeah. And she, and she kicked it, man. She, it was like, I, I, I was stunned. And she was the only one I remembered from that show. Because hey, guys, I'm going to have to just jump in here because we are. I, I screwed up the clock here. This is my fault. But we're so tight on time. I think we're going to have to say goodbye to Gene. We're going to get him back okay. for our right. annual jazz review thing. Thanks for joining us. Howard Sherman. No uh, we're going to roll over now to Howard Sherman, uh, theater administrator, writer, advocate. He's the U.S. columnist for The Stage Newspaper of London and the author of Another Day's Begun, Thornton Wilder's Our Town in the 21st Century. We did a whole show with him about that. Um First of all, Howard, you should just tell us a little bit about yesterday. Yesterday, you were part of kind of a Broadway musical flash mob led by Lin-Manuel Miranda to sing uh, Sunday in Times Square. What was that like? Well, it was pretty extraordinary. And, and hi, Colin, and hi, to, hi Steve, and hi, Gene. Um, I, I, what would, happened yesterday was that actually uh, an actor who people may know from Madam Secretary named Eric Bergen organized this gathering of people to sing Sunday at noon on a Sunday in, in Times Square. And um, I, I wasn't part of it. I was observing it. I was photographing it. Um, but, but I know that since Friday, all I've wanted to do is be in a crowd of people and hear them singing that song and how wonderful that it happened. And yeah. even as I was busy taking photos and seeing what was going on, I I sang along too. Of course, how you, do you not? How do you not? Exactly. We're gonna we're gonna end the show today, by the way, with a little bit of that performance from yesterday. But right now, Howard has picked a, a song. We're so ha I'm so happy. I think Steve is too. You picked something from "Merrily We Roll Along." Uh, this is the song "Our Time." Something is stirring, shifting ground. It's just begun. Edges are blurring all around, and yesterday is done. Feel the flow, hear what's happening, we're what's happening. Don't you know? Okay, I, I can't really let the song breathe because we don't have enough time. But So Howard, uh, just tell us why that's your choice. Why does this song speak to you? 
two reasons. One, when I was in college, my friends and I planned to see it on Christmas break and it closed very rapidly. And so we could not see it. So it was the first Sondheim show that I was all ready to go to and just couldn't. Um, and then I bought uh, the disc, uh, the, the vinyl album about a year later uh, without having heard a note of the show and just thinking, well, I should just, I should hear this. And in those pre-streaming days, and I bought it and listening to that recording, if you knew nothing of the show's history, if you listen to that original cast recording from 1981, you just can't understand why that show didn't run forever. The score is gorgeous and stirring and beautiful and everything people tell you Stephen Sondheim isn't. And I have to say my favorite Sondheim show is Sweeney Todd. <laughs> but in terms of pulling out songs, it's hard to pull out songs from Sweeney Todd. Pull out songs, there, there are a number of songs in Merrily Roll Along that are just stunning and standalone. And even though Steve said, you know, he didn't write songs to write songs, he wrote songs for musicals. He wasn't interested in simply writing songs, but writing songs for people, for characters. Um, I think I think in some ways some of Marilee's songs stand alone most of all. I, I think Steve and I both agree with you. I did essentially the same thing that you did, except rather than buy the disc, I borrowed Steve's copy and never gave it back. Um, <laughs> But but yeah, that, you know, that that original it's been restaged a bunch of times and there's this whole theory that it'll never work. I saw the Fiasco Theaters version of it in, in New York a few years ago. And, and actually, I thought that one worked really, really well. But it, it is there was a British production directed by Maria Friedman that was stunning and emotional and moving and it worked 100 percent. All right. We're going to have to stop here. I want to thank Steve Metcalf for being my partner and buddy all the way through this uh, and uh, to all of our wonderful guests, including Howard Sherman. But I'd like to end with a little bit of that concert that or whatever you want to call it that he was at yesterday in Times Square. <laughs> 